Good morning, church. My name is Cody Snyder. I serve as pastoral intern. And it's been a joy being at Hamilton these past few months. And I'm grateful to be sharing God's word with you today and look forward to the months to come. Now, I don't know about you, but I like stories, and I'm sure most of you do as well, whether you're young or old. And stories are powerful, aren't they? I don't think they're powerful because they merely communicate facts or information to us, such as lying is bad, right? That's not a story, or patience is good, right? Rather, Stories have characters in them, situations in them, in which we can relate to. That's what makes stories powerful. For example, if you want your children to be honest, rather than not telling them don't lie, you may share with them the story of the boy who cried wolf, which demonstrates the value of honesty and certainly the consequences of lying. Or you may want to teach them patience and perseverance. You may share with them the turtle and the tortoise or the rabbits. The race is not always to the swift, right? There's something about stories that communicate information to us in a way that sometimes mere statements do not. The characters, the setting, the plot, the conflict, and the resolution. We like the tension. We like the emotions. Why? Because stories are something that we can relate to. They invite us in, in a sense, to be part of the story. And people have been telling stories since the dawn of time. In fact, the Bible itself is filled with many stories, or what we call narratives. Over half the Bible is filled with these. But these aren't just made-up stories. These are true stories. And their purpose is to show God at work in His creation and among His people. And today we're going to look at one of these stories, part of the grand story of God that happened about 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. In fact, it happened in the wilderness, a time when people thought all the stories they previously heard about God was over, or maybe they were made up. But Matthew writes, under the inspiration of God, to show us that the story of God redeeming His people was not over. In fact, the story is still not over today, and you're invited to be part of the story. So would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, and if you're using one of these black pew Bibles, which you can find in front of you, it'll be on page 808, and you will want to go to the large bold print number 3, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and the Bible says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Would you pray with me? Father, would you let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you, our strength and our Redeemer, We pray that you would use your word by your Holy Spirit to change us today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what I think we all should see from this passage, if I could give you a main point, is is this. The promised kingdom has come, but you are not ready. Therefore, repent and trust in King Jesus. Matthew is telling us the promised kingdom has come, but you are not ready. Therefore, repent and trust in King Jesus. Now, before we jump into this passage, this particular account, this particular story that Matthew is telling us, I think it's good to step back and remember that we are not just learning about Matthew or Mark or Luke or any of these guys, but there's there's a bigger story going on, right? Right? And it starts back in Genesis. In fact, God in Genesis created a world, a beautiful world, and placed people in that world to reflect his glory. All was good. In fact, all was very good. But instead of reflecting the image of the king, the God who created them, the people did not trust him and they rebelled. This act of disobedience brought about sin and death in suffering, in pain, in chaos, which our world is to this day filled with. The unity, the fellowship, you could say, between heaven, where God is, and where earth, where people dwell, was shattered. It was broken. But God made a promise that one day he would crush sin and death. And he carried out what we call this plan of redemption through men like Abraham, Moses, and then through the nation Israel. And this was to be a place where people would come and and see God dwelling with his people. They would be a light to the nations. But the people's hearts continued in sin. So through kings and prophets, God reassured his people and the world that a salvation was coming. Redemption was coming. There was hope. And as the prophets go on, as these shadows become clear, it seems as if this is coming in a person, a king, one who would in fact reunite heaven to earth, one who would make all things new. In fact, the Old Testament ends in Malachi by saying something like this, Behold, says God, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there's hope, right? God isn't done. But then there's 400 years of silence. 
it was certainly, it was a noisy 400 years. It was filled with religious debates, political revolutions, and people claiming to be the Messiah. But none of that noise was from God. None of that noise was from a prophet. You imagine 400 years of silence not hearing from God. It may seem like hope was gone. The story seemed over. Maybe that was a myth. Maybe our grandparents, our great-grandparents, or the people back then made it up. It was just a story to make us feel good, to cope with our pain and our suffering. But then one day angels appeared with a message to a virgin and her fiancé, and then a star directed foreigners to worship a new king. Shepherds were given good news, and Matthew, in fact, begins his gospel by saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And the word he used is the same word we get, Genesis. So Matthew, in a sense, is saying there's a new Genesis happening. This Jesus is Emmanuel. God has come and the Savior. Now, fast forward 30 years from actually what we've been talking about the past two sermons, and we begin to learn more about this man, Jesus. And the first thing I think I want us to see here in chapter 3 is the message. What is going on? What is this message about? What is John the Baptist about? What does Matthew want us as readers of God's Word to see? And I think he wants us to see the story isn't over because the promised kingdom has come. And you may, I don't know if you, if you like video games. I'm sure that there are some of you in here who like video games. But in recent years, I've seen a trend, right? So, I don't know when video games started. Was it the 80s, the 90s? I don't know. But there's a lot of new video games that have come out since that time. And they've got better graphics, better games. I mean, there's probably hundreds, thousands of games that you can pick. But there's this trend going on recently in Christmas that you can actually buy one of these old game systems now. Whether it's PlayStation, Xbox, Nintendo, they're coming out with these old games. And I, why is that? They're, they're not as good. They're not as fun, maybe. But there's something about these retro video game systems that bring back good feelings. Those were the good old days, right? Those were my days in the prime, right? And it brings back these feelings, evokes these messages. Or maybe you've noticed when you're watching a football game or a baseball game, when your team comes out of the tunnel or out of the dugout, you see them wearing these weird uniforms, and they call them throwback uniforms, right? And what's going on with that? Well, they're trying to say, look, we're... We're part of this history of this club. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing, depending on your team. But there's something that these uniforms that they're wearing evokes messages or evokes emotions or memories of something in the past, hopefully to a good time. And I think that's what's going on here in Matthew chapter 3. Notice what's going on. First of all, notice the setting of where, where this story is taking place. It's taking place in the wilderness. It's taking place by the Jordan River. And you think back to the history of Israel, this story of God redeeming his people. A lot has happened in the wilderness. After all, it's where God led his people to give him his law at Mount Sinai. It's where God left his people wander till they got to the promised land. And then we come to the Jordan River, and it's the place where God last spoke to his people before they went into the promised land. So something is happening. Certainly this setting is historical. It's fact. It actually happened. There was a guy named John the Baptist. But I think Matthew is showing us there's something greater going on than just mere historical facts. There's something, a new story is happening. 
And this, after all, was the message of Isaiah chapter 40, which we heard read earlier. And then Ezekiel talks about a time when I would bring you into the wilderness, and there I will purge you. And what's up with John's wardrobe, right? What's up with his style? Is he just around to get people's attention? I don't, I don't think so. It's evoking a message, right? It's evoking a memory, right? When they look at him, they see, wow, this guy, he's, he he's kind of sounds like a prophet. And he's, he's dressed like a prophet. Camel's hair, leather belt, what he's eating, he's, he's a prophet. So he's evoking, he's bringing back these retro systems, this throwback jersey, if you will, to evoke the people of Israel to tell them a message. So despite the historical setting with real events, real people, real location, it doesn't say once upon a time, why does Matthew give us these details? Well, Matthew seems to be saying the story of God is not over. In fact, there are 54 direct quotations of the Old Testament in the book of Matthew. The promise of God still stands. The promise of new creation still stands. So what is John's message about? Well, he says, repent. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what on earth is the kingdom of heaven? Has anybody asked you that lately? What is the kingdom of heaven? Mark and Luke and other New Testament writers often refer to the kingdom of God. So why does Matthew use the phrase kingdom of heaven? Well, there have been different ideas throughout the history of the church. Some have thought heaven was used instead of God to avoid offending Jewish readers because they didn't want to write the name of God down, right? That sounds like a good, a good reason, except Matthew uses kingdom of God four times, and he uses the name of God over 50 times. So that doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like Matthew was trying to hide the name of God. If he was, he didn't do a very good job. So why this phrase? What does the kingdom of heaven mean? Well, the best explanation that I can see is that Matthew is contrasting earth, where we are, and heaven, where God is. A heavenly realm versus an earthly realm, if you will. And think about the Lord's prayer. What did Jesus pray a couple chapters later in the book of Matthew? He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as what? It, it is in heaven. So in a sense, Jesus was praying, Lord, let your perfect will, let your glory, which is where you are and the people that are with you, let it come to earth. Let them be reunited. Let the curse that was put on earth that shattered the relationship between heaven and earth, let it be brought back together. And Matthew seems to be saying, this is happening. The story isn't over. Now, the Old Testament was clear. God reigns. He is sovereign. He's the creator of all and is in control of all. Yet, at the same time, there's a sense in which all is not as it should be, right? God is in control. God is sovereign. But look around you. There are things that we know that do not please God. All is not as it should be. But Zechariah told us that the Lord will be king over all the earth one day. And John the Baptist's message is that this is now happening. And notice when it was happening. It is at hand. It is near. This is not way in the future, but it has begun because King Jesus was born. He has come. Notice where the axe is. It's not in the shed. 
It's not being sharpened. He doesn't have to go to tractor supply to pick it up. No, the axe is at the last root. One more swing, and it's here. The chasm of sin and death that has come between God and us is about to be undone. The glorious, sinless, joyful place where God dwells is reuniting with earth. The kingdom is coming because the king has come, the Messiah, the promised one. The story is not over. And you may be here today and think the same thing about the Bible. You may even be a Christian, but doubts seep in your mind and think, it's been a really long time since we've heard anything from God. It's been a really long time since Jesus lived on the earth and the apostles wrote. And you may be tempted to think that the story is over or those guys made that up. And can I just say, I think John the Baptist still speaks today in his, in his sense saying, take heart. Take confidence. The story of God is not over. In fact, what does the story of Bible teach us, if anything about God, is that God tends to take his time from our perspective, right? A, a thousand days to us is like a day with God. Time is nothing to God. We are not talking about a God who is constrained or controlled by time, but is himself the creator of time. So just because something happened a long time ago does not undermine its value. But there's a problem. The good news is the kingdom has come. The story isn't over. But the problem is you are not ready. We are not ready. So the idea that the kingdom of heaven is coming, the kingdom of God is come, that may sound like really good news. But in a sense, what was John the Baptist saying? He was saying this. He was saying, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is God is coming. The bad news is God is coming, right? It's just like if you hear that the Yankees have won the World Series, that may be a really good news for certain people that live around the Yankees, but for most of the country, that may be really bad news. Or even think of something like the American Revolution, right? Where Americans would think, yes, that's when we got our independence, but those folks across the sea, that wasn't a great, a great war for them, right? It depends on your perspective. It depends on your situation. And the same is true about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven arriving. It depends, are you ready? So despite the glorious news of God's kingdom arriving, what was at the core of John's message? The story of God isn't over. God is still working. Jesus has come. But the core of his message was what? That word, repent. And again, this evokes the message of the Old Testament prophets who were continually calling God's people to forsake their idols and change and turn back to the one true God. But this message of repentance that John is teaching us tells us that we need a fundamental change. There's something about us that needs to change. And let me tell you, John the Baptist wasn't the only one. When Jesus began to preach, he said, repent. When Peter got up to preach at Pentecost, he said, repent. When Paul spoke before a king, he said, repent. When John in Revelation wrote to the church in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, he said, repent. So whatever else Christianity is about, and there, there is a lot, it seems to me that a fundamental message of Christianity is that we are not okay how we are. 
Something fundamentally needs to change about us if we're going to be part of this glorious kingdom, of this reuniting of heaven and earth. The message of Christianity is not a message of self-affirmation or a declaration that God loves you just how you are. It's a cute statement, but it is wrong. And this is, after all, what the word repent means. It means to change your mind. That's why John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way. If you have to prepare something, doesn't that imply something isn't ready yet? And as one person said, there is more empirical evidence for the doctrine of original sin than for any other truth of Scripture. Right? We don't, we don't need scientists to tell us that we're all fundamentally bad or that there's something fundamentally wrong with us. We know that, but we just don't like to admit it. And so what, what, what is going to happen because we're not ready? Well, this, this passage in chapter 3 is pretty clear. Notice verse 7, there, there is a, a wrath to come. Verse 10, there, there's something about being cut down and, and thrown into the fire. Verse 11 talks about fire, burning up the chaff with the unquenchable fire. Verse 12, and again, you may be here today and think, that's too strong. Certainly, there are things that I can change in my life. After all, no one's perfect, right? Americans can't agree on anything, but we can all agree on that statement, right? Nobody's perfect. But at the core, I'm I'm a good person. And for that, God loves me. But the problem with that mindset is that you have actually declared your standard to be God's standard. And you dismiss his, his diagnosis of you and healing with your own self-affirmation. If you stay away from Christianity because some of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you, I get that. I understand that. But does that really make sense? To assume that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that contradict you? You know? Friends, listen to God's word. The story is not over, and you need a fundamental change. We need a fundamental change And there is judgment to come if we do not have this fundamental change. But this strong emphasis on judgment, we do not want to overlook it. We do not want to hide it. But it should not cause us to neglect the good news of what John the Baptist, what Matthew is writing to tell us about. We've seen what the show is about. God's story is not over for the promised kingdom has come and we must repent. So what does repentance look like? Well, John gives us the remedy He tells us to repent and to trust in this one to come. And we'll say, King Jesus. So let's think about John the Baptist for for a moment, his message here. What did he say? Well, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He did this. How did people respond to John's message? Well, I could think of three categories of people that would have responded to John the Baptist's message. And the first one is this. There would have been straight-out skepticism, straight-out rejection. I'm sure that there are some people, the text doesn't talk a lot about this, but there would have been people who walked by John the Baptist, seen his appearance, thought, that dude is crazy. 
I don't need to listen to him. He's not saying things that I particularly like about myself. He doesn't know me. And they would just reject him. That's group one, right? They would say something like Mark Twain said, the Bible has noble poetry in it and some good morals and a wealth of obscenity and an upwards of a thousand lies. There's some good things he's saying, but overall, it's a myth. He's crazy. But you know what's interesting is that one of Jesus' own apostles had the same type of doubts, and I think many of them did. Notice what Thomas said when Jesus was resurrected. He said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails are and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So, you may think the message of Christianity is crazy, or you may have friends and neighbors who think the message of Christianity is crazy. There's things that are hard to believe. And we're gathered here today as a church, not because we have everything figured out or have superior knowledge of everybody, but we say, yeah, Christianity, it does have some things that are hard to believe. After all, wise people don't believe in a resurrection of the dead, right? It's really quite absurd. But just a bunch of enthusiastic people to get themselves martyred is also absurd. So we believe, we as a church are here today because we believe that Jesus Christ died 2,000 years ago, but he got up from the dead. He didn't stay dead. This king has come, and he has given himself as for his people, but he did not stay dead. So Christianity may seem like some hard facts to believe, and it is, but the message of Christianity is more glorious than any other message because we worship a risen Savior, a risen King. So that's the first group of people. Second group, we see people repented. Many confessed their sins. They turned to God. They said, I'm not fundamentally a good person. I do not live or think or feel as I should. I cannot save myself. Therefore, I trust in God's provision of salvation. That's what John the Baptist was calling us to. And what happened when they did this? He baptized them. And this baptism didn't do anything to better their standing with God. It was just a symbol that they had repented. Then there's the third group of people. And let's call these people the self-deceived people. Those who think they are part of God's family, but are actually trusting in a wrong means of salvation. Right? And I want to spend the rest of our time thinking of this. In a sense, there was group one, straight out skeptics, right? And there's two, the people who actually repented. But three, the, self de- the self-deceived. And John told them that they must bear fruit corresponding to repentance. So look down with me at verse seven. And we have two groups of people here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to his baptism. And John didn't welcome them. It certainly would have been helpful, I think, for for John's movement. If John wanted to get his movement going, who better than to get the Pharisees and the Sadducees on your side? After all, they're the religious leaders of the day. If we can get these guys in, we've got it. We can get this movement going. We'll have Baptists everywhere, right? But one, John wasn't necessarily a Baptist. And two, That wasn't his method. But these people, John called them out. You brood 
of vipers. Verse 8, you're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. What does this mean? So repentance is fundamentally a change of mind, but John the Baptist is showing us that repentance is more than a mere declaration. These people would have said, we believe in God, we believe in his promises, and John says, but your lives look nothing like they're supposed to. They're self-deceived. They're very concerned with purity laws, Sabbath observances. They go to church every week. They don't do the bad things of society. Their concern for holiness was not wrong. Rather, how they sought to accomplish it. And I think that's, that's a reminder for us today is just because we are zealous and passionate does not imply God approves. You know, you hear this say, he, she, they were so sincere. And I think John is showing us you can be sincerely wrong. They, they thought they knew what repentance was. They, they thought they knew the promises, but it wasn't sinking in, right? It's kind of like my two-year-old son. We tell him things are hot. Don't touch that. And he can repeat the word hot. That means he's got it, right? No. He will walk around saying hot, 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 and then try to touch the hot pan. So there's a disconnect there. And I think this is what was happening with the religious leaders of the day, and it's what's happening in many churches today, is there are people who think, we understand Jesus, 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 Jesus. But we want to touch the hot pan. We, we want to indulge in sin. We want to keep living how we are. And I think the, the message of John the Baptist is saying, be careful. Don't deceive yourself. And remember, this coalition is actually what led to the death of Jesus. And repentance is not mere regret. 2 Corinthians 7 tells us that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You can feel sorry for something. You can feel bad about something, but that's not the same as repentance. Or how do you talk to your spouse? I'm sorry you're so sensitive. That's not repentance. It's not even a real apology. Repentance is a change. I fundamentally am not okay how I am. I need somebody else outside of me to save me. And these people, the religious leaders, they were apparently trusting in their relationship to Abraham, right? But they were trusting in the wrong means of salvation, their hope was misplaced, sincere but misplaced. And so, an easy, are you trusting today, are you trusting in your family because they're Christians? It's your heritage? We go to church every so often? Or are you trusting in your efforts, your goodness? Are you trusting in politics to save you? What do you do when God's word contradicts your heart? And if your faith never costs you anything, any sense of security, any of your possessions, perhaps it's not real faith. John reminds us that his baptism expresses a repentance, a confession of sin, 
but the one who comes after him, one who John isn't even worthy to be compared. So finally, he's calling us to trust in this king. Trust in King Jesus. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we see here, and fire will burn away the sin and purify the truly repentant. And many Jews understood this as the Old Testament imagery as a, as a fiery breath, meaning it's going to purge out what is bad and leave what is good. The prophets spoke of a time when God would pour out his spirit. Now John the Baptist says this is what Jesus will do. The king has come. His kingdom has begun even though we still await that final consummation of the kingdom, the final day when all is made new. I just want to remind you, the story isn't over. It wasn't over then, and it's not over today. And John's baptism pointed to Jesus' greater baptism, one that ushered in a new covenant, which is written on our hearts, Jew and Gentile alike into one body, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, we've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. What hope that is for us today, to know that the story of God is not over. And I just say, if if you're here today, maybe you're a Christian, maybe you claim to be a Christian, maybe you've gone to church for a long time, I think this passage causes us to reflect on ourselves and don't wait for the judgment to come. As one hymn writer said, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. So you think, I'll do this later. I'll take care of this next week, next Christmas, next year, right? That's New Year's resolutions. We always, now we can, now we can do something different, right? You can do something different today. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. The story of John the Baptist presented by Matthew calls us to something better. More than your own security, your self-promotion, your fame, your success. Let your desires, your motivations, all of your energies, your resources, how you use them, let them be shaped by King Jesus, who, in a sense, deconstructs our values, our identity, and and place builds something much more beautiful and glorious. Live in this kingdom that Jesus has begun. And how do we do that? Well, maybe this afternoon you could read through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus shows us a new way of life, a life in the kingdom, a life of poverty of spirit, meekness, mercy, purity, peace. And how, how do we see this kingdom of heaven? How do we see this kingdom of God right now? Well, primarily, we see it manifested, made known through the church, through us. It's not that the church is perfect or it demonstrates the life of kingdom without mistakes, but the church seems to be the primary means that God has chosen to make his reign known, his kingdom known, his people visible. And this is really good news because you and I as Christians, as people who trust in Jesus, have been intersected into his story. This means that our life is not ultimately about us. It's not up to us to find our meaning, our purpose. Your identity is not ultimately to your country, although we are Americans. It's not ultimately to Virginia, although we are Virginians. Your job, your family, your wealth, your education, your hopes, your backgrounds, it's It's not your identity. You're not tied to that. Those are important, but there's something much greater. And I say, 
Watch out for allegiances or causes or movements or people which are not the kingdom of God. The king has come, and he's coming back. And the call of the gospel is a call to allegiance to King Jesus. And Jesus is not a king who merely shows up for public ceremonies, is he? No, this is a king who showed up to a bloody cross to give his life for his people. This is not a king who sends his people out to win the war for him. No, this is a king who has conquered sin and death for his people. And this king is coming back again to bring the full kingdom to earth. John talks about this in Revelation when heaven finally meets earth and it's a place where God and his people will dwell forever. The king is returning. You can trust him. The story wasn't over 2,000 years ago and the story isn't over today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Would you please help us to remember of your story of redemption and what Christ has done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.